0: A minimal creed, an ample science, and maximal faith. That is our aim. Welcome to Experiential Theology, the podcast where we investigate and talk about the relation between human experience and knowledge of God. Welcome to Episode 9 of the Experiential Theology podcast. Today we begin a new series. Based on a book titled *This Life* by Martin Heidegger. Martin is a Swedish philosopher. He teaches over at Yale University. Uh, Time Magazine, if I'm not mistaken, put him with one, put him up in one of their articles as one of the 50 most brilliant minds of today. I don't know their methodology or how they figured that out, but I mean, he's clearly an important person to read and become aware of. So we're going to be reading this book titled, This Life, and it has a subtitle that is very important, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom. This book is made up of six chapters. Chapter one is titled Faith, chapter two, Love, chapter three, Responsibility. All this constitutes part one, secular faith. Then chapter four is natural and spiritual freedom. Chapter five, the value of our finite time. Chapter six, democratic socialism, and the conclusion, our only life. All of this constitutes part two, spiritual freedom. So the subtitle again is Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom. Today, we're gonna be talking about the introduction to this excellent, excellent book. Uh, I would say that this is the best book that I read in 2020. And I read, I don't know, maybe 20 books. So it's a good book. And of all the books I've read since I graduated from high school, which is when I became a serious reader, I would place it in the top five, maybe top seven. It's, it's up there. It's an excellent, excellent book. And that's what we're going to be talking about. We don't know how many episodes we'll devote to this. It's going to remain an open project. We'll see how the spirit leads. But uh, we definitely believe that this is a book that we need to read and interact with. As usual, Ben is here with me, and he is uh, ready to get us started. Today, we're gonna just deal with the introduction. Hi, Ben. How are you?
1: Hey, good. Thanks. All right. So, this book—it's the title sort of tells us what it's about. It's about this life, uh, which is really about a focus on the present, in a certain sense. Uh, and I was just thinking about this, just just now. Um, there's a quote from George Orwell's 1984 that really stuck with me over the years. And that is, and this is what it is. He writes, uh, who controls the past controls the future and who controls the present controls the past. Uh, Make of that what you will. I like this book because a bit of a contrast to that attitude uh, in a sense that this book is about how who controls our perceived future controls the present and, I, and what this book is doing for us is it's challenging our assumptions as Christians, perhaps, or as secular people about the future and what we think of the future and how we value the future and how we allow our perspective on the future to affect our approach to the present that we have in our possession right now, um, to how we're going to interact with this life, not with eternal life, but with this life. And uh, at first, when you mentioned this book to me, I was a little resistant because, uh, I, I don't know, I, I was a little bit nervous about having um, my eschatological cage rattled, if you know what I mean. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, but I'm really glad that I'm, that I'm into it. I'm about halfway through it now. And, and there's, there's plenty to be encouraged by and challenged by, even as a, as a Christian or as a religious believer. And, and, I, and I do take much of the challenge in here uh, to heart. Um, I think that I think that we really would do well to rethink how we've allowed our perceptions of the future to affect our our approach to the present in the Christian faith, and and we really could improve on our approach to the present in the Christian faith. I think so.
0: Definitely. Uh, today, again, we're gonna just talk about the introduction and. The introduction, it's about 40 pages or so. It's rich. It's deep. It's, it's amazing. You need to read this. But we're going to focus on this one contrast. He talks about what he deems secular faith versus religious faith. We'll define those in a bit, but that's what we're going to be talking about today. Secular faith versus religious faith. So again, the author is a Swedish philosopher. He's a an atheist. But he believes that everybody should be faithful everybody should have faith he just advocates that we need to have what he calls secular faith and so long as religious people have secular faith he's okay with that again we'll define terms in a bit but before we do that let's uh talk about finitude he gives us a definition of what he means when he says that we are finite what does it mean to be finite ben
1: so let's read the let's read the definition he gives in the book. He writes, um, "To be finite means primarily two things: to be dependent on others, and to live in relation to death. I am finite because I cannot maintain my life on my own, and because I will die." That's his definition. Uh, I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, so let's just say that. Right up front, um, we can be value neutral here and just that's what finitude could mean if you want to use this definition, which I do, honestly. Um, uh, Now, the next question is, well, what do you make of that? Like, are you happy with finitude or is finitude seen as a negative thing? Uh, Well, it's interesting because this definition, he's tangled two things together. He's tangled dependence on others and living in relation to death right mm-hmm. so let's say that let's say that in your religious perspective you 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 understand finitude in terms of relation to death and you think of death as an overall negative and you want to overcome death through the eternal life you, you basically want to overcome finitude through mm-hmm. your faith um well if you want to overcome finitude that if you and if this is what the definition is going to be That means you're also overcoming dependence on others. But any Christian faith that's worth its salt, it's all about this interdependence we have on one another and how we love one another. So you just can't get away from, we just can't categorize finitude as negative because the Christian faith is all about a wholesome dependence on one another. And it's all about a posture towards death as well. So so, so it's, an interesting, uh, it's an interesting sort of triangle or hexagon of, of interrelated things here. Yeah.
0: Yes. Uh, I like this quote where he talks about the sense of finitude. He says, the sense of finitude, the sense of ultimate fragility of everything we care about is at the heart of what I call secular faith. To have secular faith is to be devoted, to a life that will end, to be dedicated to projects that can fail or break down. So I like how he uses religious language, and he's not doing this just to trick people into atheism, right? He's doing this because he really believes that this way of viewing the world, this way of living requires devotion. It requires dedication. And I mean, that's religious language as it is. And uh, yeah, I mean, this just underscores what it means to be finite and what it means to have secular faith. Now, he talks a little bit about what he means by secular faith using the etymology of the Latin word. And basically, he says, ultimately, uh, secular means worldly, temporal, this life, right? Not the beyond, but the now, the here and now. That's what he means by secular. Now, he contrasts this with what he calls religious forms of faith, right? And among these, he lists the following. Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, and later on in one of the chapters, even um, Stoicism. Okay? So these are all very different. Some don't necessarily believe in a God, but what they do have in common is this. In in all of these, they regard our finitude in different ways, of course. They regard our finitude as a lack, an illusion, or a fallen state of being. And so through this book, he does take the time to interact with these traditions and... uh, and to push back against some of their central claims when it comes to what it means to be a human being. Because in all of these religions or philosophies, whatever term you want to use, one of the problems that we encounter is that the minute you say that, actually, no, we are not finite, we do move on, we do live on, inevitably, what tends to happen is the following. People say, oh, so this life is not all that the race. Oh, okay, so it's not that important because, I mean, we'll be here 20, 40, 60, 80 years, but then I'm going to live forever. So who cares? I mean, who cares? I'm just going to be here for a few years. I'm just a pilgrim passing through. I don't need to worry about ecology, the earth, politics, economics. I'm just passing through.
1: Isn't this funny? Because it's like the opposite of that ancient quote, I think it's even biblical somewhere. Um, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. <laughs> it's like, well, we're going to die tomorrow and live on, So let's eat and drink.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so what he does in this book is to really question this type of religious thinking, whether it come from these religions or stoicism or whatever, it can come in various ways where we devalue this life. And say that it's not that valuable, actually. It's not that important. So he will say, look, we are finite. Because we are finite, our lives are of infinite importance. There is no redeeming them. So this life, we have to make it count. It matters infinitely, precisely because you get one shot at it. It's over at one point, and that's it. There is no like, well, you know, you do have an eternity to fix things, or you get a do over, or you live again, or there's reincarnation. Now, this life is it. It matters. It's important. And we really have to be careful how we live. That's what he does throughout the book. And I think it's tremendous how he interacts with all of these religious systems. uh, Implicitly, for the most part.
1: Yes. Yeah. The, the, the real question is, um, is to do with our posture towards finitude and which corresponds to our posture towards the present. And uh, yeah, this double definition of finitude as this dependence upon other people and living in relation to death. Um, yeah. I, I just think that, I just think that uh, I'm just really on board with this program of trying to make finitude to something to not be ashamed of into something that you can work with into something that you must work with. Cause there's nothing else available. Uh, yeah. And, and, and to recognize this religious instinct to devalue the present. Now, when I say, when we say, um, when we say there's a religious, when we say a religious form of faith is a faith that devalues our finite lives. Um, if that's the definition we're using, mm-hmm. then, w- then we really need to be honest in the sense of, we need to, we need to just, I think we just need to give that word to this author here and just let him use it. If you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, when we see in the new Testament, like injunctions to care for one another and to love one another and to take this life seriously, those are forms of secular faith in the new testament. Mm-hmm. And so that's the term we're going to use. Secular faith is to do with this life, what to do in this life. And and, and religious faith pertains to the next life. And and the concern is that the is that our, our faith, as it's oriented towards the next life, can actually have a detrimental effect on our secular faith for the present. Um yeah. It doesn't have to be this way. I guess this is the this is the debate, but this author is trying to show us that secular faith can stand on its own two feet without, without religious faith to prop it up. In fact, religious faith is a bit of a hindrance. I don't know how I feel about that. I'd certainly recognize the propensity of uh, religious faith to detract from the present. This is a real problem, um, but I'm not sure that but I'm not sure how the of faith is going to work exactly, even having read half the book. So, <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, like any other book, you have to read this book charitably. But I think he does a phenomenal job interacting with Christian theologians and thinkers in context, respectfully, very intelligently. So it's it's definitely a great dialogue that you see. You may still disagree at some points, but you can definitely tell that he's done his research, he's studied, he knows what he's talking about. Whether it be philosophy, religion, uh, economics, etc., absolutely. Yeah, I think I want to
1: say too is that I I think that in um, the Book of Job was or is one of my favorite biblical books because I had the chance to study it a bit more directly in seminary, and uh, and I feel like there's almost like a form of secular faith in the Book of Job, hmm. where like the first of all the book of job like any ancient book comes in layers right it's been changed over time different communities have transmitted it some of them have added their twist on it like maybe particularly the beginning and the end of job were not necessarily from the same source as this middle dialogue in job Mm -hmm. um but let's just focus on the middle of job uh like the like chapter three through to maybe the second last chapter uh that 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 is very much like comports with a secular it's deeply concerned with the present and with justice in the present and with god's obligations in the present and there's not a lot of of um let's call it like punting to the afterlife as far as joe knows his sickness is going to lead to death he's going to close his eyes and then he's in the hands of the Lord in the great unknown, he doesn't know what happens next. Um, and so I feel like we do have some local sources that could point us towards secular faith and help us along the way. In this,
0: yeah. yes, um, I again I, I mentioned that I've read many books before, but I would say I've only read few great books and I would put this book in that category I mean one book that I know you've mentioned many times on the podcast is the book the prophets by Abraham Heschel if I'm not mistaken it's an absolute wow it's just mind-boggling piece of theology I mean it's an amazing amazing book
1: Hey guess what it's also a book about secular faith (laughs) is it not yeah, thesis is that God is concerned with, mm-hmm. with how yeah. people treat each other in the present.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah. And so that one is written by a rabbi, right? It's written by a rabbi, not a Christian, but it's just a tremendous, tremendous book. And I've been looking for books like that, written by a Christian. In this case, it, this one's written by an atheist, but you know what? I appreciate it. And I think one way to look at the project here is a lot of us in Christian circles we we are interested in liberation theology i would call this this is kind of like liberation philosophy it's not mm-hmm. theology but it's very much concerned for the liberation mm-hmm. of the oppressed and everyone's oppressed by death of course but there are other things that oppress us as well so yeah absolute great book
1: Okay, let's, uh, let me mention a couple of things. So let me read a passage to you and maybe you can react to it. Mm-hmm. Um, this is on page eight. Um, he says, for the same reason, climate change and the possible destruction of the earth cannot be seen as an existential threat from the standpoint of religious faith. To grasp the existential threat to yourself and the future generations, you have to believe not only that life is finite, but also that everything valuable, everything that matters depends on finite life. This is exactly what religious faith denies. If you have religious faith, you believe that all finite life can be terminated and yet what is truly valuable will still remain.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think on the same page, he says only, it's a strong argument, only a secular faith can be committed to the flourishing of finite life Sustaining forms of life on earth as an end in itself. Okay, so that's an important qualification. So secular faith has to do with doing what is good for humans, doing what is good for animals, doing what is good for the earth as an end itself. I think that's very important. And so, of course, there are people who do this and they are religious, right? Their religion moves them to be secularly committed to this planet, which is great. But the problem is that a lot of people are not. And the reason they are not is because, again, they're utterly convinced that the dangers that we face, which are catastrophic, ultimately they're not real. They're not real because they're just convinced that God would not let this happen, right? God will not let this happen. You know, if the heavens and the earth are destroyed, then he'll just renew them or create new ones. And so we don't have to worry about it. God will come down and save us from destroying ourselves. So we don't need to worry about it. And so there is this tendency to be very passive in taking ownership and responsibility for our actions as individuals, as communities, as countries, as a global As a global community. And that's something that he talks about here. If that is truly what you believe, you're not going to be existentially threatened by our demise if we don't change and if we don't make the changes that we need to make. So, absolutely. I mean, it seems like uh, religious faith.
1: Remember, when I say religious, I'm using his version here, which means a faith that prioritizes the eternal and devalues the present. Uh, So, if that's what religious faith is doing, then it's a huge distraction from from the things that actually matter. (laughs) The future is out of hand; like we don't, we don't, we can't reach it, and it's not there. It's the present that we have access to, and where our choices um happen even though they affect the future and so it's just such a shame that with our eyes on the future we sabotage our actual future Mm -hmm. yeah so this 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 concept that you described um i'm on page nine here you may have already read this quote i forget um if you care for our form of life as an end in itself, I think that's finite life, you're acting on the basis of secular faith, even if you claim to be religious. If you care for our form of life as an end in itself, you're acting on the base. Uh, oh, I got I copied the thing twice. Yeah, so, it, it, so this may be a little bit sneaky in a sense if we're talking about religious versus secular. We got to remember that religious means future-oriented and secular means present-oriented. That's the definition he chooses. It's analytic. So, anytime we find a sort of faith that is focused on the present as an end in itself that's secular faith and I and I guess my kind of goal in this is to sort of see where in in my Christian faith have I something do I have something that looks like secular faith because I think that's a good thing um, yeah so the comment I wanted to make sorry was uh, that, I read a book uh, years ago by Nicholas Waltersdorf, where he talked about justice, and of, and, and he spends a bit of time talking about motivations. And one of the motivations he talked about is called um, eudaimonism, which mm-hmm. is a, which is a fancy term. And the other type of motivation he talked about was agapeism. And and this was essentially what it what it was is like: Do I love the other person? Uh, for their benefit and for my own benefit, or do I love the other person as an end in themselves? So eudaimonism, it loves in order to, it does love, in fact, love the other person, but it loves them in a way that will benefit itself. And I, honestly, many of relationships are eudaimonistic, even with children, um, friends. It's only really when when there's no real it's, agapeism can also happen. Agape relationships can also happen, but I guess this is why enemy love is such a powerful thing in the New Testament, because love of enemies is sort of the anti-eudaimonistic form of love. It's possible to have eudaimonistic love for your enemies in the same way. Um, so we can have, we can have a, we can treat people as ends in themselves, uh, but sometimes we can fake it and we can treat them as means to another end without anyone else noticing. It's only in these extreme cases of enemies that, that, the, that the two are easily to discern the difference between and i just i just see secular faith as describing a form of agapeism really something mm-hmm. that that treats people as valuable unto themselves in the present
0: yeah okay well uh i'm looking at page 10 and i think he gives an example where you see the example, uh, where you see the juxtaposition of religious and secular faith. So let's turn there, page 10. So I'll read an extended quote. He says, "I will Accordingly, I will seek to show that secular faith lies at the heart of the sense of responsibility. Let me take a basic example, the golden rule. To treat others as you would like to be treated is a fundamental principle in both secular and religious moral teachings. The golden rule, however, does not require any form of religious faith. On the contrary, a genuine care for others must be based on secular faith. If you follow the golden rule because you believe it is a divine command, you're motivated by obedience to God rather than by care for another person. Likewise, if you follow the golden rule because you believe it will yield a divine reward, for example the release from karma you're not acting out of concern for the well-being of others but rather out of concern for your own salvation if you care for another per- if your care for another person is based on religious faith you will cease to care about her if you lose your religious faith and thereby reveal that you never care about her as an end in herself Skip a few lines. The golden rule does not depend on a religious sense of eternity. On the contrary, it depends on a secular sense of finitude.
1: Yes, yes. um, Yeah. So I'm thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says... Uh, to love your enemies. Uh, And sometimes in Jesus' teaching, he says, so he talks about, so that you'll be rewarded, right? There is in in the Gospels, the sense of um, lay up treasures in heaven, for instance. Uh, So in those cases, we can't really point to a secular faith directly. Um, However, in the case of loving your enemies, he says, he says, why? So that you'll be like your father in heaven. Mm-hmm. so so that you'll be like your father in heaven who makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike uh, that god gives good gifts to those who deserve them and those who don't deserve them um yeah and so so i'm just thinking that like i think i i do think that the christianity i had preached to me growing up was largely reward based. It was actually very eudaimonistic. It was about it was about knowing the way of salvation, and the gospel was described as sort of like the me, the mechanisms of salvation that we believe in, uh, which led be focused on this future. Led us to that we were that 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 was a threat to the present, um, and often we are interested in sacrificing the present for the future, like doing right things now because of the future later, um, because of eternal reward yeah but in my current faith it's transformed a little bit and it's transformed in the sense that what i'm really interested in and this is the why we call this the experiential theology podcast is interested in the power of god at work in the world through the spirit of jesus and the power of god at work in the world through the spirit of jesus is not the spirit that comes to bring reward it's the spirit that brings transformation and it brings transformation for the present moment in the present moment and so I think I've talked to you about this when we were texting back and forth about this book. I feel like this secular faith as a term and as a concept um, could capture a great deal of the fruit of the spirit in the Christian life. The fruit of the spirit is not something that we embrace for the sake of reward. It's something that we embrace because of the value of other people because of the value of our community and our value of our time together. Um, yeah, the fruit of the spirit isn't future oriented; it's all about the present as well. Um, yeah, and this and this idea of trans—remember the eudaimonism versus agapeism. This idea of am I motivated out of self-interest, or am I motivated because other people are ends in themselves? I think Romans 5.5, 5, it talks about the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Um, I, could, I think I could rephrase that without losing the meaning if I were to say the power of God to make other people ends in themselves has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Is that for me at the moment, Christian faith is about receiving power to make other people ends in themselves.
0: Yeah. And I think, again, it's worth highlighting again. The point of this book is not to get religious people to become atheists. That's not the point. The author does hope and aim at converting religious people, not from religious to non-religious, but rather from religious to religious and secular. He doesn't really care where your religious ideas are. Ultimately, he wants you to care about the here and now and it's totally... so you're using
1: religious in two terms there in two ways there I, I think what you're trying to say is that he's trying to orient religious people from the future back to the present
0: uh yes you're right i'm using both definitions so let yeah. me let me try that again he's not interested in deconverting you meaning that you read this book and at the end you're not a christian anymore no rather he wants you to be a Christian that is motivated to have your faith be activated in such a way that you don't just look to the future, I mean, you're free to do that, but that you look to the here and now as the locus of your faithfulness. That's what we're talking about. And so it's absolutely possible to use the New Testament and the Bible to accomplish this. I think, for example, Matthew 25, the judgment scene, right, where uh, basically Jesus tells somebody, you know, I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And this person's like, what? I never did that. It's like, yeah, you did it because when you did that for other people, you did it for me. In a way, that's... Agapeism, yeah. mm -hmm. So to me, that's more or less what secular faith is and then there's this other person who didn't do any of these things and jesus says you didn't do that to me i never saw you lord what are you talking about the implication being is if i had known that it was you jesus who was hungry i would have fed you if i had known (laughs) if i had known that you were in prison i would have i would have tried to get you out or fed you or something But because he was just some regular person that I didn't know, I didn't care. I think that's another application. I also think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's and his idea of anonymous Christianity, right? The the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. So you're doing unconsciously these good things here in this life. Not because you're looking for rewards, but because This is who you have become because of your faith. That's ultimately uh, what I hope for, for all people who are religious in whatever religion they're in. I want people to care about the now. I mean, the beyond and the hereafter, I mean, there's nothing we can do about that anyways, right? So let's care about now and Let's just embrace and be devoted to one another with no thought of reward or you know what that will do to us in the hereafter.
1: Yeah, so let's, let's talk about, um, I think that the theme that's coming up here is that it's, it comes back to who are we becoming? Who are we now? Um, How are we transformed? How how are we being transformed right now? Um, So let's look at uh, page 16. He says, in contrast to religious faith, secular faith recognizes that the defining purposes of our lives depend on our commitments. The authority of our norms cannot be established by divine revelation or natural properties, but must be instituted, upheld, and justified by our practices. Now, this reminds me of a philosophical concept that I was working with from Paul Moser called uh, semantic foundationalism. And this is the idea that words mean whatever I intend for them to mean. Some when, when people say to me, oh, that word means this, I want to stop them and say, no, no, no. It means what I meant when I used it. <laughs> That's what it means to me. It can mean something else to you. Of course, um, we have like a, a great deal of shared commitments to how we are gonna interpret words and that allows us to communicate and to speak. But at the end of the day, we have to, not even explicitly, but, but at a practical level, we are committing to interpret certain words to mean certain things uh, in certain circumstances. This is how language works more or less. There's a whole field of how language works, but this is how I think it works. And you know what, our life is a lot like a language. Our life is something to interpret. Our decisions are something to interpret. Our actions that we choose, there are our, our options available ahead of us. They're, they're things that we interpret. And the commitments we make as to how to interpret those things, those come from within. They also come from without. Other people encourage us to commit certain ways. And sometimes we just go along with it without even reflecting on it. But, but we become this, um, this network of commitments. Commitments to interpret our lives and our options and our neighbors in different ways. And uh, secular faith is, in, in, in his perspective, and I completely agree, is about saying those commitments matter. My commitments that I enter into, either sleepwalking or wide awake, they matter. and They matter in the present. And they bring meaning and value to my life and my actions and my relationships. Um, and yeah, and so to bring the New Testament into it, I would just say, and the Spirit of God is bound up in challenging me to form certain commitments and challenging certain commitments I've already made and empowering me to carry through on these commitments. Uh, and that's, that's the part that I would add from my quick mic twist on this book. <laughs> yeah
0: great okay well uh again there's a lot that we could talk about here and this is just the introduction (laughs) this is just the introduction we haven't even begun with chapter one but i think we have done a good job of just talking about what i think is the main theme at least in the introduction which is this contrast between secular and religious faith anything else that you think we need to address before we uh Finish our discussion of the introduction.
1: Yeah, let's just let's just return back to something we said earlier um, about let's go back to the definition of secular faith. Let me scroll up. I'm gonna read it again. So secular faith, to have secular faith is to be to a life that will end, to be dedicated to projects that can fail or break down. Um yeah, so secular faith is a profoundly vulnerable sort of faith. Mm-hmm. It's this idea that the the weak things have value and the things that pass away can be beautiful while they, while they're with us. Um, I don't know. This just seems like a wonderful, like something that's so compatible with a theology of the cross, right? The opposite of the theology of the cross is a theology of triumph that says because of Christ, we are now invincible, um, mm-hmm. checkmate atheists <laughs> or something like that. And, and, uh, but the theology of the cross, especially, I know you appreciate Moltmann and others. Mm-hmm. It's the theology that God is vulnerable. God has made God self vulnerable. Um, and God has gotten hurt in the process. Yeah. And and so does God have secular faith here? For goodness' sakes, like, it's possible. If God is what if, is God concerned about the present? Absolutely. This is Abraham Heschel's book, The Prophets. Uh, and so I I don't know. I think I've been traveling towards select, a theology of secular faith for a long time, um, because I've been moving away from this theology of triumph and i've been moving away from this classical god who's immutable and uh, impassable who's totally secured from loss and 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 we will face loss in our life so so why not um have a faith that's planning for it and ready for it and ready to interpret it rather than trying to explain it away like it's not actually happening
0: Yeah. yeah Excellent. I like how you you brought uh, the theology of the cross into this mix. At some point, he he will touch upon those things. And in chapter one, uh, I think we're going to be interacting with, I think, C.S. Lewis, Luther, and Kierkegaard. I think it's in chapter two. I'm not sure. But uh, we are going to be dialoguing with excellent, excellent voices on all these matters. All right. Okay, well, that's the episode, everyone. Come back next week for episode, uh, I guess, number 10, dealing with chapter number one here. Take care. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Experiential Theology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Please rate the podcast in whatever platform you use and share it with whomever you think would enjoy our subject here. You could also leave a voice message by going to anchor.fm backslash experiential theology.